1: Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at Meta.com slash Metaverse Impact.
2: This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid Conversations about connecting and communicating.
1: We want a doctor that can feel free to apologize to us. If we have a healthcare system in which healthcare professionals are penalized for being vulnerable, it is very, very hard for them to admit mistakes. And that just, that is incredibly dangerous, right? If, if you're in the OR and the surgeon feels like they can't even tell the anesthesiologist that they've messed up, Right? Let alone the patient afterwards. This this is not safe. This isn't safe for anyone involved.
2: That's Laurel Braitman. She's expert at helping medical professionals communicate with their colleagues and patients, even admitting mistakes. And she does it by encouraging doctors and caregivers to write about their experiences, to tell the stories of their lives. Her own story is a complicated one. In her memoir called What Looks Like Bravery, An Epic Journey Through Loss to Love, she tells us how despite a successful and varied career, she spent decades struggling with grief. It's a story she now realizes she had to write before she could help others write theirs. Your new autobiography called What Looks Like Bravery has a really interesting title because in the book you say that what looks like bravery is really being afraid of something else even more. So were you, were you doing reckless things that weren't as scary as the thing you were keeping away from?
1: Great question. Yeah, I think what I would consider reckless things, you know, many other people might not consider reckless things. Or, or let me say this, I was doing things that I thought I was supposed to think were brave, where meanwhile, the things I was scared of were things that I saw people doing around me all the time. Um, it didn't seem to scare them at all.
2: Well, first of all, what did you do that seemed reckless to some people? And what seemed scary to you?
1: Well, I'd say as soon as I turned 17, 18, I started hurling myself into life as if I was a cannonball. Um, You know, I wanted to experience everything I possibly could. I I wanted to see the world. I'd, I'd grown up in a really small rural town and every night after dinner, while my father was alive, we would spin the globe, and he would tell me about it. And I just have such tactile memories. Our, our little globe was three-dimensional, and so you could feel mountain ranges and the dips of the oceans with your fingers. And I would run my fingers over that globe, and I would daydream about what it might be like, you know, to leave my little town and also find people uh, who thought reading books was cool, <laughs> you know, outside <laughs> of my family. (laughs) Um, And meet people who are different than me, um, meet more people who are similar to me. You know, the promise of the wider world had such a a siren song for me.
2: But you didn't just go to capital cities, you went to the Amazon.
1: I did. I right. did. I, uh, to my parents' chagrin, you know, they just kept wishing I would choose something like Florence, Italy or something where they would love to visit <laughs> yeah, me and eat right. delicious food. But no, you know, I, I was particularly interested in natural history and science and, I really wanted to go see like a lot of the trees and animals and rivers and lakes that I'd read about since I was a tiny child. So I started in Alaska and then I spent a lot of time, yes, in the Amazon basin and throughout South America. And at the time I was doing ecological um, research, largely stream ecology research, and ichthyology, or the study of fish. And the great thing about these jobs was that people would pay you, you know, at a relatively young age. Like, I was 18, 19, 20, and I would get my flight paid, and then I would get a small hourly wage. I was laughable about the amount of money I was getting now, but at the time, it was wonderful. And the idea that you could get paid just to be curious, you know, and go to places you would have gone anyway. That that was a miracle to me.
2: But while you were cannonballing around the world, you were avoiding something that seemed scary to you. And you said you started that when you were 18, soon after your father's death, after years of facing his death from cancer. Was that what you were avoiding dealing with?
1: Yes, although like many things we do in avoidance. I wouldn't have been able to tell you that at the time. Yeah, right. You know, but yes, I I thought that by going and soaking up as much of the world that he couldn't, I was in some way, I think, living for him, living for both of us. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I think that's one of the best legacies we can leave for the people that we love, that we can inspire them in our memory to do the things that we were so passionate about. Um, But in my case, it wasn't just stemming from that. It was stemming from a belief that I'd let him down, that I was bad inside and no one could see it. And if I just challenged myself enough or if I did these, did enough, somehow I could outrun my own difficult feelings of shame and regret and, and sadness, really.
2: The pressure that you were under as a kid knowing your dad could die at any time is I really embodied in that story that the reader comes upon first in your book, where you're having fun with your girlfriends, painting your toenails and watching TV. And then you discover something in a cabinet. Tell me that story. I want to hear it in your own words.
1: Absolutely. So from a very young age, my my father was diagnosed with terminal cancer when I was three and a half. So it was never a mystery to me that he was going to die. And in our household, talk about death was very common, for better or worse, you know. Um, It was a human inevitable, and it was something that could both be funny and tragic. Um, And my father was a surgeon, so it was also something he would say day in and day out at work, and we would talk about medical cases at the dinner table. Um, But his death was something else, and so we never knew we were going to have as much time with him as we got. We, We lived between scans. We lived between pathology reports and so i i knew that his death was inevitable um what i didn't know was that he had a plan for it so right to die in the 90s uh, or medical aid in dying assisted death um every there's lots of words for this um but people's choice to end their own life when they have a terminal illness is something that wasn't legal in california at the time And my father always told our family, so my mom, my brother, and me, that when he couldn't enjoy life with us anymore, he was going to die. And I really grew up, I think, not questioning this and sort of thinking that the human will to live was kind of like a light switch, that, you know, one day you just wouldn't want to live anymore and you would die. And I was 15 and I had some girlfriends over and we were sitting around doing what 15-year-olds do. um, And... I went into my parents' bathroom to look for some nail polish remover and I came across an unmarked um, pill bottle and there was a note on it. And I immediately realized what it was that I'd found my father's lethal prescription. And I put it back exactly where I'd found it. I told no one about it. I, I knew it was illegal. And I also respected his choice, even at that age. I, I understood it. I knew he wasn't taking, quote unquote, an easy way out. I knew he didn't wanna die. And sort of like the giving tree, he'd spent 14 years trading body parts of his and capacities for time with us. And mm. so I'd lived with that reality. But it did scare me because I didn't know when he was going to do it. And I felt like I couldn't ask that somehow that would be a betrayal of him and his strength and that he wanted us to believe that he would just decide not to live anymore and go. So that was a, a big moment for me as, as both a secret keeper and as someone who realized, you know, that the people close to me have their secrets, too, Um and and also that this was an option, maybe not available to everyone, but because my father was a physician, it was available to him.
2: That sounds like an enormous amount of pressure to carry around, to know that he's got this pill bottle in the cabinet. And you had an interesting relationship with your father. He seems to have badgered you a little bit with his hopes for you. I love the story about his teaching you to fish and that he wanted you to fish so well that no man could best you at fishing.
1: It's true. He had a very specific list of things that he felt would kind of parent me from beyond the grave, I would say, because he didn't know I I would be a teenager um, by the time he died. And not like that's a long time with your kids, but, you know, it was for us. And so when I was about in fifth grade, he had a recurrence. Um, that was really serious. He he initially had a, had a tumor in his knee, had a leg amputation, um, and this recurrence was in his other knee. So he was forced into retirement um, and he realized that the metastases were sort of spinning outside of his control and he was going to die sooner rather than later. And that's when he set out I think with a much more specific list of the things that we would need to thrive without him. And it was very specific to him. So, yes, it was like me being able to outfish any grown men. Uh, I had to learn how to fix a carburetor, change a tire, squish a man's eyes out if I was attacked. Um, And then also some very things particular to us and because we are also commercial fruit growers, um, you know, it was setting up the irrigation, learning how to plant a tree perfectly well. Um, and then intellectually, he had a lot for me too. Like, I, I I don't even think this is in the book, but I had to memorize like the Krebs cycle. Um, and he, he just had some very specific things that truly have ended up serving me incredibly well. I, I think if I could go back in time and sort of pull him aside and ask for something, you know. It would be to make sure that I didn't take it as a to-do list, which I did. I I took it very literally of the things I needed to learn and the person I needed to become.
2: Well, he knew you were interested in writing. I get the impression he was like a stage mother about that. He wanted you to do it and succeed at it.
1: He did. You know, I think the writing, though, was really interesting because— you know he he trained as an engineer and then went into medicine so he loved loved books but he'd never met a writer and writing was very mysterious to him he just loved books and he knew i love to do it and so I think the writing was kind of a hope for me. It, I think it also probably scared him because he knew he wasn't going to be around to continue to badger me into a career that would would be secure. Um, so that f- he gave me a final gift. I, I opened it at my high school graduation. It was six months after he died. And my mom gave it to me. He had written a note and wrapped it up. Actually, she probably wrapped it. Um, but the note said, this is to use to sign your first book someday. And what a gift that was. you know, it was a, a kind of blessing of my dreams. Also, I was sixteen and a half years old, you know. <laughs> so so what kind of teenager also grows up to be the exact thing that they say they're going to be at that age? Uh, but there was no way I was not going to do it, right?
2: Be- but you kept the pen, and when you wrote this book, what did you do with the pen?
1: You know, I wrote the first few lines of the book with the pen, and I've also signed it. And I signed my first one with it too. And I signed both of my book contracts with the pen. I had to have my mom overnight it from California um, to my agent's office in New York City. And the funny part is that it's a fountain pen, and I God knows, I have no idea how to use a fountain pen. So every time I use it, I get big pools of ink everywhere. It looks so ugly. But it's also such such a joy. You know, I, I think that good parenting can be like a form of time travel. It allows him to be present in the future. It allows me to go back into the past and hold something he held and do something meaningful with it. So I, I've absolutely used it. And with great frustration and joy as as these things go, you know.
2: So you have a connection with your feelings now. Did that connection emerge after that complicated childhood ending with the death?
1: God, no. Uh, You know, I spent, I'd say, the better part of 20 years trying not to feel my feelings. And I used work and the pursuit of shiny prizes and also just the pursuit of my dreams as a kind of anesthetic on feelings I wasn't sure I would know what to do with. You know, I, th- I think I felt like if I just touched, and I write about this a bit in the book, if I touched my pain with even a toe, it was kind of a lake that would swallow me up and I worried I'd never get out of it again. And so I avoided it and I avoided it in ways I was getting rewarded for. Um, and and I think that was the hard part. If I was acting out by not doing well in school, uh, for example, I think I might have gotten help earlier that I needed, which was, hey, Laurel, like maybe some of this stuff was hard, um, and it's okay. You you can be sad and you can follow your dreams. You can be sad and be happy. Um, But I really didn't understand that you could be both of those things at the same time. And it seems really simple, but I actually think we still, for the most part, except for good films like, say, Inside Out, um, and many of the people you've had on this podcast who are helping us think in new ways about the things we care about or about our work, you know, I, I... really had a hard time holding two conflicting feelings at once. And whatever I did, I would instead try to outrun them.
2: So you were working with grieving kids in the program called Josie's Place. Was was that instrumental for you yourself and not just for the kids you were working with?
1: Absolutely. It, to me, it was the most selfish thing on earth, you know. Um, I had found out about grief support for kids late in life, in my mid-30s, right as I was just beginning to realize something was wrong. So many of my dreams had come true that my dad had set out for me. You know, he he really wanted me to go to MIT for a PhD. He wanted me to write a New York Times bestseller. Like, I did all of those things. And then mm. I kind of looked around and and, you know, he wasn't back. And the loss of him hurt even more. You know, with every good thing, it, it it almost hurt more, you know, because I couldn't tell my number one fan. And I felt like I, in some ways, misunderstood the assignment. And here I was 35, and I had built... Uh, a life I was proud of, but also it was hard for me to get close to anyone. And I realized I needed some help. So I actually first tried to enroll with the grieving kids as a kid. Um, The
2: the age limit is much, much younger than 35.
1: Yeah, the age limit, I think at the time was like 14. And they were so (laughs) nice to me. You know, they said, Laurel, we so appreciate this, but that's really creepy. No, you cannot come as a child. So they let me train. But in
2: administering the program to kids, you actually benefited.
1: Oh, tenfold, you know, because I got to do everything with them. And I got to hear how the other facilitators and the therapists and the leadership spoke to them. And it was how I needed to be spoken to. And also I was able to have so much empathy for these kids. You know, they weren't bad because they didn't happen to be in the room when their parent died because they would gotten hungry for a snack and gone out to play, right? Mm. Yet, yet they were talking to themselves the same way I talk to myself, you know, and through being with them, I realized shame and regret. Those are actual normal feelings of grief, right? Mm. Because we're casting around trying to find a rationalization for why the bad thing happened. And sometimes there is no rationalization at all. So we blame ourselves because admitting that it happened for no reason is too scary because that means it can happen again.
2: I imagine that that feeling of impending guilt could lead you to not feel grief at all.
1: Exactly, exactly, exactly. Because you're so busy interrogating yourself and yelling at Mm. yourself for not behaving the way you wish in whatever final moments or even over the course of your relationship with the person that I think your grief ends up being delayed in many ways. Um, And sometimes that's fine. Honestly, I think avoidance gets a very bad rap. (laughs) You know, I don't think I could have processed what i went through before i was age 35. i don't think i had the emotional wherewithal. i don't think i had the emotional intelligence. i don't think i had time. you know, grief in many ways is a privilege and a luxury to be able and, and requires a certain amount of financial security, right? for you to sit mm. back and think about what you've been going through and let yourself feel negative feelings as opposed to just showing up to work and grinding. you know, so i i really didn't have the ability until I was in my mid-30s. And I think that's fine. I really do. Um, you know, I I wish for the children who say, do go through grief support programs when they're younger. I don't think they're going to have to wait till their fourth decade. Um, but for me, that's just how it worked out. I'm just glad it happened eventually.
2: When we come back from our break, Laurel Braitman talks about the program she founded and runs called Writing Medicine, which encourages medical professionals to tell their own stories, professional and personal. This program is sponsored by the Codley Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is to stimulate scientific research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, to strengthen the relationship between science and society, and to honor scientific discoveries with the Kavli Prize.
0: Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. Ask your doctor about Cosentix.
1: Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills.
0: There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact
1: muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
2: This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Laurel Braatman. We got to the point in our conversation where Laurel had finally begun to resolve her grief over the loss of her father decades earlier. The process of going through all of this in your book, telling your story, sounds so similar to me to what you teach doctors in helping them become more empathic, more vulnerable, and better doctors in relation to their patients. Did one come before the other where you, you had to get the impression you were already teaching doctors when you applied it to yourself and wrote the book?
1: Yeah, thank you for saying that. You know, both things, I believe, were were happening at the same time, and they really influenced each other. So I think the fact that I wanted to be in medicine at all and be a writer in a medical context was because of the way I was raised. You know, it was because I had a storytelling doctor as a dad. And as I mentioned, those are were, those were our conversations over... The dinner table. I wasn't scared about talking about death or illness or dying. I thought I found it interesting, and it made me feel safe. Honestly, when when people are having hard conversations about the stuff that other people don't normally talk about, that's when I feel the best. You know, I feel like I can I can let my flag fly. You know, um, and so I was really drawn to medical spaces, and then also I will say, you know, I I don't have to tell you, you know. I, medicine is the front lines of the human experience so often. Mm. And I think our healthcare professionals are with us at our best days, our worst days. They're with us at our most confused and they're tasked with helping us understand often life or death choices or choices where those seem like the stakes and maybe we can't tell the difference. And so... I, th- I thought I was writing a very different book. I-, I wanted to write a book very, like, third-person, science reporting, like I was used to writing. <laughs> I wanted to write about whether doctors die differently um, than the general population because I thought, like, my dad, maybe I would find people who saw end-of-life day in, day out, and maybe they would make different kinds of choices around end-of-life. So I started reporting that book, and then, you know, that book, many more things happened if, you- if you're writing about grief— um, and loss. It's sort of like a strange invitation to the universe, I think, <laughs> where uh, more pianos kept falling on me from the sky. And that's what the book ended up <laughs> being about. Uh, but I thought, you know, I was going to stay very comfortably in the third person. It wasn't going to be personal. You know, why would I share my own story? I really just wanted to write about doctors and a hard-hitting science reporting. Um, and then, of course, that's not what I did. But I did wind up Um, skulking about hospitals, asking healthcare professionals questions. And I started to see how little training they were getting in communicating with themselves and also with the public, their patients, colleagues. And that seemed like a big problem to me.
2: So you train them to tell their own story. I do. I do. And that helps them be more vulnerable. Yes. What's the connection between vulnerability and good patient care?
1: Great question. We want a doctor that can feel free to apologize to us. That's just mm-hmm. one example, right? If we have a healthcare system in which healthcare professionals are penalized for being vulnerable, it is very, very hard for them to admit mistakes. And that just, that is incredibly dangerous, right? If, if you're in the OR and the surgeon feels like they can't even tell the anesthesiologist that they've messed up, right? Let alone the patient afterwards. This this is not safe. This isn't safe for anyone involved. So on a very practical level, we need our healthcare professionals who are charged with keeping us healthy to feel like they can admit when something has gone wrong or be able to take responsibility when they've made a mistake, to be vulnerable professionally without fear of losing their licenses, you know, unless it's been very dire or repeated A repeated problem, but often well intentioned, incredibly trained people will make a minor mistake. And there's pressure often not to admit to it because there are professional ramifications. Um, There's one study, I'm not sure if it's been updated, that people who've been apologized to after a medical error are much less likely to sue for malpractice.
2: Right, I've read that study, yeah.
1: I think that's fascinating, and it makes sense to me. We we just, as citizens, you know, want to be treated like full humans in a medical context, and I believe that that can't happen unless the physician is doing it for themselves first. So mm. if, if we expect our physicians and other healthcare professionals to be kind of superhuman in many ways, um, they are not able to be real with us.
2: It seems to me there's another problem, too. In addition to not being willing to admit a mistake. I get the impression that there's a problem you're working to solve that was brought up by a doctor you talked about in one of your talks. He said his mentors indicated to him or, or told him in plain words he could either be a good doctor or a good person. Hmm. Yes. And, and that I think that meant that you have to withdraw from the patient as a person and not be overwhelmed by their suffering or, or swamped by your own empathy. So is that what you're working on, helping them not give up on the empathy or to modulate it instead? Do you help them step back at some point? How do you handle that?
1: Yeah, what we're trying to do is build in moments where people who have been in these high-stakes situations have a moment to reflect on what it meant for them. And why they do what they do, a place to process difficult cases, but also to process other things that are going on in their personal life, Mm. um, to talk about difficult conversations that they've had, um, their experience on teams, processing conflict, and we do it in the context of giving them, you know, storytelling prompts. And often, you know, I'll get a room full of like surgical residents and I will ask them to write about uh, their most difficult feeling of the week is A monster. They're inviting that monster to a tea party. Um, Mm. What does that monster sound like? What are their table manners? What do they talk about? Um, You know, and at first glance, like, they roll their eyes. It's like, who invited the (laughs) woo-woo preschool teacher, right? Like, we have 20 minutes outside the OR. I'm going to have to scrub back in again. Why am I doing this? And then about 20 minutes later, you know, they they have laughed, they have cried um, you know and sometimes I purposely try to start with a kind of goofy question and then we we move into other things um you know your most unexpected teacher over the last 10 days, um, A moment you learned something from a patient that shocked and surprised you and you wish you'd learned earlier in your training, Um, we we run the gamut from deeply goofy questions and discussion and storytelling prompts to the more serious, Uh, but it really connects them. And
2: then after they write their piece, is it read to the whole group and then discussed or what? How do you handle that?
1: Well, I try not to force anyone to share, but I will say I give very pointed eye contact. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but usually, honestly, it's really just the first person um, that has to be the bravest to share. And then in almost every group, everyone shares eventually. You know, many people go into healthcare because they've been touched by a story about healthcare, you know, they or they read a book by Atul Gawande, or um, they read Paul Kalanithi's When Breath Becomes Air, or Oliver Sacks, um, or they just really love the Well column in the New York Times, right? Mm. Oftentimes, if someone doesn't have a physician in the family or something, that's how they wound up in medicine in the first place. And so, most people I talk to actually have kind of secret or not-so-secret dream, about sharing what they're seeing uh, with a wider audience, whether that's you know their extended family or th- whether that's the readership of a major newspaper?
2: I think I've found as well, when I help somebody communicate better, when they make contact with a story from their own past that's meaningful to them, it seems easier to make contact with a person right now in front of them They focus more on the person. They hear them. They listen to what they're saying. That kind of deep listening that people talk about, oddly enough, can be practiced by listening to yourself a little bit.
1: Absolutely. I think that's why I couldn't do this work if I hadn't written a memoir, is the truth. You know, I think learning to figure out how to tell my own story really did teach me how to help other people tell theirs, even if theirs are very, very different. I, I think you're a thousand times right and I think storytelling is the ultimate empathy generation machine because if you're doing it right people are literally seeing the wor- seeing the world through your eyes they're feeling things through your skin. Um, if you are doing a good job you are allowing people to transport themselves into your experience so I don't think there's anything more powerful than that and I, it's obviously it's not just writing it's audio and film and all of our different ways that we can do storytelling but i think not teaching people in healthcare how to do it comes at a great cost.
2: So you're going around with a group called Pop-up Magazine telling stories? What is that? I don't know anything about
1: that. Oh, that's a, that's actually separate from this work. Um that's a live magazine. We actually just went on our last tour, um, but it was a hell of a lot of fun. It was with many of my best friends. It was associated with California Sunday, which is a magazine that sadly has also gone to the magazine graveyard, the great beyond in journalism. Um, but, yeah, I have told many stories with Pop-Up Magazine. It's kind of a live storytelling podcast, but on stage. Um, with the writing healthcare professionals, I, I I do something called writing medicine, which is every other Saturday, or actually it's the first and third Saturday now of the month. And I think we've had ten to 15,000 participants now, and it's healthcare wow. professionals from all over the world. And we gather just for an hour. It was free for the first two and a half years. Now it's pay what you can. Um, the most people pay those $25. Um, and they come and they share stories and it was, it was really powerful during the first few months of the pandemic. And now it's powerful Mm. in different ways because it's just a community of healthcare professionals, but it was a place for them to let off steam in a protected space and get help telling the stories of some of the things that they were seeing and experiencing and also a place to put a lot of their fear. You know, we started when, you know, there wasn't enough PPE, we weren't sure about transmission. Um, So now people in the group have published books, they've published op-eds, they've written articles, and really they help each other much more than I help any of them. So that's ongoing. And then I'm doing a Writing Medicine Grand Rounds uh, in addition to a kind of normal book tour where I would like to be offering this not just for healthcare professionals, but also for patients and caregivers. And I'm starting at all the biggest cancer centers because of my own experiences, but uh, I would like to bring this work to anyone who sees value in it.
2: So that's face-to-face. Yes. So you'll be going around the country combining the book tour with Grand
1: Rounds? Exactly. And, you know, Grand Rounds are very often a medical topic, although there is, there is something called Schwartz Rounds where they talk about medical humanities work. But I just love the idea of doing a Grand Rounds that's, that's storytelling, a sort of mobile campfire um, in clinical spaces around the country.
2: Oh, that's great. We'll have a great tour and Thank a great you. launch of the book.
1: Thank you so much. And thank
2: you for talking with me today. We end every show, you sound like you've heard the show, so you probably know, that we end every show with seven quick questions, roughly to do with communicating. First question, what do you wish you really understood?
1: How to balance the idea of living with your mortality being front and center, with the anxiety and sadness of that, and how to figure out how to have a different engine, I would say. So if I've lived the first half of my life with a kind of very loud ticking mortality clock with a sort of meta-anxiety that that shoves me forward to my dreams, I want to figure out how to live the second half of my life with a different motivator, um, with a motivator of joy or of pleasure. And I'm not sure if I can change my fuel like mid Midstream, but i wanna I wanna understand how to do that like like what do people do when their work isn't motivated by like fear? <laughs> <laughs> okay, second question
2: how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong?
1: Oh I'm so bad at this. Um, my husband would be the first one to tell you. I don't know. maybe that's what I should that should be my answer to the what I wish I understood. I, I try to listen. Uh, my husband runs a Sammy Cannery in Alaska and we are surrounded by people who have very different political beliefs than us. And so it's been very good training to realize that I can have great conversations with people who politically are very, very different than me. Um so I'd say talking about lots of things not just polarizing issues allows us a, a way through the doorway and uh. I hope down the road we we can talk about the fact that I think they're just dead wrong <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a little
2: snag there right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay next what's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you
1: Oh, my gosh. Well, my first book was about animal mental health and the emotional lives of animals and animal cognition. And so for many, many years, um, and to this day, I still get uh, an email a day about an animal who is doing something very, very strange. And... (laughs) I have no idea what I am supposed to say to these people, but it's really fun. Um, you know, my horse is only scared of blue things. What am I supposed to do about that? Um, my <laughs> hedgehog has befriended the neighbor's cat, but the neighbor's cat doesn't like the hedgehog. Please tell me what I'm supposed to do. I have a whole file in my Gmail just with wacky animal questions that if I could send them on to an expert, I would, but there no expert exists.
2: Well, you got a real basket full of questions. That's great. How do you stop a compulsive talker?
1: I'm not good at that either. I actually usually just leave.
2: Okay, that that sounds active. Let's say you're at a dinner table next to someone you never met before. How do you start up a genuine conversation?
1: I love this. And I've been so thrilled after the pandemic because other people also seem to have no uh, bandwidth for small talk anymore. And I think small talk is just the death of human connection. So I will ask them things like the questions I I ask many healthcare professionals I work with, my students. Um, I start with a kind of icebreaker question. Um, you could even do like two truths and a lie channel your inner camp counselor or preschool teacher or a uh, junior high teacher. So I ask all kinds of things, you know, one that usually gets people going is tell me about the last time you were so happy that there wasn't room for anything else. Like the last moment of, of complete obliterating joy, explain it to me, use all your physical senses. Mm. That's a fun one.
2: And that, that sounds really useful. Okay, wh- next one. What gives you confidence?
1: Being outside. Nature. Non-human nature. Gives me confidence. I, I never feel better than when I'm walking through a forest with no mirror. Is the truth.
2: Okay. Last question. What book changed your life?
1: I was ready for this one, but nervous about it. Um Every life stage I've had, and I'd say they tend to switch up for me maybe every seven years, there's been a different one. Um, but when I was looking around trying to figure out how to write a memoir, I read The Chronology of Water by Lydia Yucknovich, and it showed me that I could be myself on the page and admit to my insecurities and become strong in doing so.
2: Well, this has been an eye-opening conversation. Thank you for showing us a great example of the power of storytelling in your own life and in the lives of doctors and their patients around the world. Thank you. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring this episode. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science, for the benefit of humanity. Laurel Brakeman is Director of Writing and Storytelling at the Stanford School of Medicine's Medical Humanities and the Arts program. Her Grand Rounds lecture and writing workshops for both caregivers and patients are going on now through the rest of this year and into 2024. Her earlier book was the best-selling Animal Madness, Inside Their Minds. Her new book is called What Looks Like Bravery, an Epic Journey Through Loss to Love. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shed, with help from our associate producer, Jean Shumay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohene and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio, Next in our series of conversations, I talk with the acclaimed biographer Walter Isaacson. His new book has become a huge bestseller, and I can see why. When I read it, I couldn't put it down. It's an unsparing story of a man with many flaws, who manages to become one of the most significant people on the planet, the planet he wants to make it possible for us to leave so we can live on Mars. It's the unpredictable Elon Musk. After Tesla had almost gone bankrupt in 2018, he went into a catatonic state. But all of a sudden, Tesla is worth more than the next nine car companies combined. And in the previous six months, he had shot up, I think, 33 orbital missions and become the richest person on the planet. And I thought, okay, he's now going to rest on his laurels a bit. He said, no, I got to keep taking risks. I need that drama. If there's calm seas, I've got to sail to the storm. And that's when he starts buying Twitter. Walter Isaacson on Elon Musk. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
0: Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Start your electric journey right here, right now. With a Volvo XC90 Recharge, our plug-in hybrid SUV with extended range. For more everyday electric journeys on a single charge with a hybrid option for longer adventures. Contact your local retailer to book a test drive, or design your own vehicle at volvocars.com US. The Volvo XC90 Recharge Plug-In Hybrid. The electric car with a backup plan.
1: My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home, through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project UP, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity
0: and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities.